Welcome to Jewelry Artists, where we examine the art and business of making jewelry. Join me for intriguing conversations with jewelry artists who will inform and inspire you. I'm Katie Hacker, your host. My guest today is Kate Wolf, and we talked from her studio in Maine, where she is doing wax carving and running a tool business. And she talked to us about a new tool that she is developing, in addition to how to get into the zone. I think you're going to like this one. So Kate Wolf, I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor. Oh, you're welcome. It's exciting to kind of bring it full circle. Mark Nelson had mentioned you in an earlier episode. And, um, you know, also with your work with Lapidary Journal, um, it's fun to be able to talk with you here and get a little more into what you're doing these days. That sounds great. And I... I adore Mark. I'm so glad to hear that he gave me a shout out. <laughs> yeah, it's always fun. So the jewelry making tribe that we have going on here. It's good. We, it's it's amazing how how interconnected we all are. It and really it's is. It's like that yeah. Kevin Bacon thing, only there's like must be someone one else. One degree or two linchpin. degrees instead of six. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Seems, Smaller circle. Especially with social media. I'm always surprised to see who's friends with who. Like, how do you know each other? That is true. I would like a little pop-up window there that shows how you know that person or how like they know the same person you know. Yeah, <laughs> it would be fun. That yeah. would be fun. Well, um, I've read that you say you have three loves, carving, wax, designing tools, and teaching. So how did you sort of distill it down to those three things? And then I want to hear all about them. Well, let's see. Well, I've been carving for 41 years now, and I... The first time I carved, I really enjoyed it. It seems to be a very meditative, peaceful process. And I do like hammering metal and it's, you know, doing some of the more, um, I don't know, more intense full body things in metal smithing. But the wax carving, I can get into a zen-like state pretty, pretty easily. And I just, I don't know, I just really enjoy it. And it, it, I always like the serendipitous nature of it. So I'll start out with something in mind. And if it's something that I'm doing for someone else, I might stick along pretty close to along with what I started. But with my own work, I have sometimes just a vague idea in mind and I just see what evolves and what, what come, what becomes. And I find that, that wild ride really, really exciting. And it still is after 41 years. Well, I think that's saying a lot about the medium and about your passion for it, for sure. I know that um, you worked with the Franklin Mint and you've worked with other big companies where you probably did have to be in line with what they were looking for. So it's cool I that did. you still have that excitement for doing your own work on outside of that. When I did, I spent 16 years carving for other people. I was a master model maker at the Franklin Mint for their jewelry division. And it was a big business. We were doing $54 million a year in jewelry sales. And wow. every mistake I made was multiplied by the size of the production run. So it was a really high stress job. And from there, I did master models for a lot of the big people in the industry where it was, again, mass production. And one of the things that I found made me marketable was they would send me unresolved artwork, like a three-view drawing that you could make a different piece of jewelry from each view because they did not add up to one piece of jewelry. And I would initially say, can I redraw this? It's going to take me about half an hour, but the drawing doesn't make sense. And I'll show you why. And they would say, sure. And I would and I'd say, I'm going to pick the view that I think it should look like and then redraw it. And they would, they'd be like, oh, that's wonderful. And after once or twice, they would say, we trust your judgment. 
we'll give you these drawings and we know you'll make something that's better than what we drew. So that was, you know, learning how to do a three-view drawing was a really marketable skill. And also there, there is, a, from flat, you know, 2D paper drawing to 3D, it's, there's, if it's hand-drawn, there's going to be discrepancies. So like sort of intuitively knowing how to interpret somebody's, you know, raw idea and make it into something tangible is, it's a, it's, it's fun. It's different than some other ways of working, especially because we're working subtractively. You start with a black block of wax and you remove everything that isn't a ring. So it's not like we're builders by nature. We tend to build walls and bridges and things. We just keep adding things on until we have what we want. But with wax carving, you're removing a little bit at a time until you have what you want. But unlike marble or other things, if you take too much off, it's not that big of a deal because you can just melt some back on and and rework it. So I'm I'm thankful that I don't carve marble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see the there's a big difference there if you can add a little bit back. Yes. It does seem very intimidating um thinking that you can only use what you, you know, only yeah. use what you've created by removing. I yes. guess that. That would be really hard for me because I add back on all the time. I often just blow past what I should, you know, where I should have stopped and then I just have to back up a little bit, add some on and do that again and again until it's finished. Well, it's so important to be able to fix your mistakes. Yes. No, it seems like you learned that in a lot of different ways. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, part of the whole process is all the problem solving. That's what keeps it exciting. I think that's what makes you really um, sought after too, is being able to fix all those problems. Probably. Yeah, I would guess so. Yeah. And even more so being able to teach people how to do that and how to get my students to ask themselves the questions. Like instead of coming to me for the answer all the time, I started a policy a few few years ago because I was getting overwhelmed with student questions. And I'd said, I'm not going to answer any questions until you give me three possible solutions, even if they're ludicrous. And then That's a great and then, idea. And because they would always write back and they had figured it out. And right. so it's, and it, it's sometimes I think people are afraid when you're new to this, or even if you've been at it to make those mistakes, or what if I make the wrong decision? Or what if I choose the wrong path? And it's, it's not a big deal. It's wax. You can just melt some back on, but just get into that experiment and explore phase without being attached to results sometimes, or just experiment, explore, expect to make mistakes. You'll have way more breakthroughs and your work will be more dynamic. Yeah, well, I think that's so true for life, too. I think I'm going to use your policy on my children when they ask me questions. I started Let's that. Let's hear their solutions. <laughs> I started that when I worked at the Franklin Mint. After a year, they made me production manager, and I had nine employees, and they were in my office all day long asking me questions. And my boss made me read the book, The One Minute Manager, over the weekend before I came back into work. She said, you're going to be you know, burned out in a month if you keep this up. And that was from The One Minute Manager. And they said, have your employees give you three possible answers. And within a month, they were all empowered. They were making wise decisions. They were happier. And they, you know, the foot traffic through my office was about 10%, you know, of what it was. So it was win all around. Yeah, definitely. And then you could get more of your own work done. Yes, so. absolutely. That's a great idea. I haven't read that book, but maybe I should. It was, it's a good one. I'm sure there's other books like it out there that was from 30, some 33 years ago, but it, you know, it helped me. That's for sure. Yeah. It sounds like it stands up. Yeah. I was watching one of your videos where you, um, lead the viewer through 
how to get started carving with wax. Mm. And it's, it seems like um, in that one, you use the China marker and then put your print down. And yep. then you, so you're kind of, cre- you're creating your own uh, stencil isn't the right word, but pattern. Yeah. To but transfer is- a pattern, I get my patterns on a piece of say copy paper. And on the back, I put a heavy coating of 6B pencil, which is a real soft graphite. And I tack, I put the paper down on top of my wax and the, to prep the wax, I s- scrape it with a razor blade to smooth it out and coat it heavily with China marker. So you have your wax with the China marker on it, and then you have the graphite against that with the pattern up. And I poke through the paper into the wax with a hot wax pen, and a little bit of wax seeps up through those holes. I just make three holes, and it just attaches the paper. And then I go over it all with my scribe, go over all my lines, and when I lift up the paper, there's graphite line on the China marker. Then I have to scratch into that, scribe into that graphite line to, to cut through the China marker into the wax. Then I fill it in with a black brush marker and razor blade it all off and I have a real crisp pattern to work from. So what's left in the wax is that brush marker, right? Right, just a really beautiful, crisp black outline. And that was, I, I had um, teaching, it's like I, don't, I didn't come up with all these techniques that I use. I've had very clever students over the years share me their tips and tricks. And a student by the name of Corin Macy told me the trick of um, putting the paper on the wax and poking right through the paper with a hot wax pen, like a needle tip and, and the wax bubbling up to secure it. And I never would have thought of that. So I can take her idea and then my idea and then another one of my ideas and cobble them together and come up with something totally new. So that's one of the exciting things about teaching is the breakthroughs that we all have together. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. I always learn so much from students, mm. for sure. Yep. It really helps me be better at teaching. And also sometimes it helps me in my designing, you know, depending on the technique we're doing. Absolutely. Is that the way that you tend to work with wax? Which? Using that idea of a piece of paper with your pattern? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for a lot of things. For rings, I do a direct layout on on the, like I would take a slice off of a ring tube, which has like a hole in it and usually a flat top or it's off center round. But I'll take a slice off the ring tube and do a direct layout on that with my dividers and scribes. But when I'm doing something like an earring or, um, you know, a pendant or something, I'll transfer a pattern and work like that. Is that what led you to develop your line of tools? Is creating directly onto the wax or just the sheer working with wax? The tools came about my right out of art school. I had the incredible good fortune to work in a sweatshop in the jewelry district of Philadelphia for six years. <laughs> it was Sampson Street, and it was literally a sweatshop. I mean, we and we cranked out. I worked with five wild and crazy Armenian brothers who had just come over from a refugee camp in Beirut, and oh my they goodness. were used to making everything in the shop work with duct tape and bailing wire, and. It was like funky, and we we just made everything work. We modified everything, and so they they showed me one of the things that stood out. So we would do huge quantities of poorly crafted jewelry. It was back when they were first selling jewelry by the gram, and we had an account with this um, some this kiosk in the casino in Atlantic City. They had a bunch of them, and you reach into a tank and pull out an oyster, and there's a pearl in it, and that was free. But you had to buy the earring or the ring or whatever that they glued the pearl into. And it was cheap because it was like they were making their, they were making their money, you know, 
Anyway, um, right. we had to do, ma- I would have to clean up a mountain of casting. So my boss was like, you know, he would say, Lan Kurik, which is, hey, sister, do this. And he heated up the ring with a torch and burned the side of the ring into the corner of my bench pin. So now I had a perfect arc impression in the corner of my bench pin. And I could just pick up my casting, nestle it right in that arc and file away. So they, you know, where they would say here, and they would just grab my pliers and show me how to grind the edges so that they wouldn't mar the metal or put a groove in the plier so you could hang on to something easier. So they, that's where I, I got the whole idea of modifying things is because we, we modify tools all the time in there. And then right, I just, and you had to work so fast probably too. Yeah, we, and it was, I was making horrible, it was like, you know, not much more than minimum wage. And, but I was learning a lot. So I stayed there for six years because there was, they were so smart and they, you know, one of them had been at the bench for 35 years already. And so mm-hmm. it was, I just learned a lot from them and it was exciting. When I worked at the Franklin Mint, I had the incredible fortune to work with a model maker from Russia named Lazar Portnoy. And he, when he was there, he's, he was an architect, but he started making um, jewelry, but he had a like salvage whatever metal he could make to make tools from or to work with. And he, when he first moved to the States, worked with a model maker in New York who showed him how to make carving tools out of bike spokes and just shape up the, you know, hammer and shape up the bike spoke and glue it into the end of a wooden dowel. So we, he worked with me at the Franklin Mint as a model maker and his, he was the best carver. He is the best carver I've ever seen. The most outrageous patience and precision. He could spend a month working on something and say, it's not perfect yet. Um, and he showed me how to make the carving tools. So I think I used like a, two or three of his basic shapes and um, and went from there. And I just, whatever shape I needed, I would just keep making it. And, you know, at the end I looked up and I had like 25 tools and I I was teaching classes and at the first day of class in the morning, everybody would hammer out some bike spokes and make a set of tools. Basically I would end up, they would rough them out and I would sharpen them all up for them and shape them for them. And everybody for years said, you should work at these tools. And I'd be like, I don't have any capital to start a tool company. And so when I finally decided to do it, I called up Lazar and I, and I said, what do you think? And he said, do it. Yes. And he was like a huge fan of it. And he's still one of my closest friends. He's in his eighties now. And he's just, I, I talk with him often. So it was like with his blessing, oh, I just like modified them, changed them and, you know, and added to them. And, and that's where it was born from. And my, my motto at the bench is if you're having a problem, maybe it isn't you, maybe your tools could be better. And, and that's, and also blame your tools. If you're having a problem, it's like, not really should they be better, but you know, if you're marring the metal when you're bending the wire, maybe you need to change, you know, the jaws of your pliers. So, and right. so my tools, my other tools, like my trimmers and stuff are me taking out my frustrations on my tools and just modifying <laughs> this again and again and again until I have an adjustable trimmer. And that, that's, I, I love the design phase of tool design. I enjoy that a bit more right now than carving, but it just depends on also what I'm absorbed in. I'm, I'm working on a new belt sander with Fordham. So I'm still like in that, you know, I'll draw it and I'll rough out a prototype in the, out of the funkiest materials, hit a wall and I'll say, okay, I'll know how to deal with this in the morning. I'll wake up in the morning with an idea, redraw it, rework the prototype. And, and it'll, this will go on for weeks. 
And then I send it off to the engineers at Fordham and they'll do what they can and then come back to me and, you know, have our manufacturer send me a prototype and we go from there. But it's it's exciting and they're a great team to work with. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I think it's, I can't wait to see that, by the way. And I think it's so exciting when you start a project like that. Oh, you know, yeah. That's right. It's like the honeymoon phase of your project. It takes on a life of its own and it just carries you along with it. And it becomes right. bigger than you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I bet Lazar would be really proud too to see those oh. kind of different dimensions that you're taking your work into. Yes. And he tells me that every time we talk. It's <laughs> I bet. He's the sweetest man. And he's still making he's still making um jewelry and he just made this, you know, beautiful candelabra and all colorful. Yeah. So it's exciting to see somebody who's, you know, he's in his 80s and he's still, you know, up in his studio playing away. Yeah, that gives me a lot of hope that we can yeah. do that too, you know. I plan on it. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I hope so. I know I'm going to need some major magnification by then, but Oh, I'm good that's with it. everything. In my classes, that's one of the first things I do is figure out who can see and who can't. And if you're not making jewelry all the time, when if you're over 40, you probably need magnification and you probably didn't realize until you sit down for a week and you're like, oh, I can't see anything. So I, I have, I have you know, Optivisors and Megaviews. My favorite right now is the Megaview. Um, I have them in stock. I have three different of my favorite magnifiers in stock and with a couple extras and people can pass them around and try and see what they like and, and then purchase it. But if oh, you can't see it, idea. you can't do it. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. I have craft optics and they have the glasses and then the scopes. And so yes. I feel like it really helps me have good posture. Yes. You know, that I don't does. lean over. I want to lean over, but it helps me not have to. Yeah. yeah Raising up too. the bench pin is one of the smartest things people can do. I, there was a tech tip sheet I did for MJSA Journal that basically you sit with your, everything is 90 degrees, your feet to your calves, to your thighs and your back. And your bench pin for most things should be up at your sternum, which is way higher than people are used to working. If you're working at a desk or a table, it's really awkward. But what happens when you're sitting up straight, your neck isn't bent over real far and you're not all hunched over and you're breathing better. And if you're breathing better, you're thinking better and your muscles don't get all tightened up. So it it makes a huge difference to sit at the right Yeah, that's a great point. And all that oxygen to your brain, it really does help. And I can see too with patients, you know, yeah. this is carving is pretty intricate, can be pretty intricate, you yep. know, and you need to hang with it. And you can do that even if you're working at a desk or a table, you can just get some scrap wood and, you know, cobble it together. And I don't know if we're putting, are we putting pictures up on the website yeah, or we anything? Are. We'll have pictures in the show notes. I mm-hmm. can, I can put a picture of a really cheap modification. Um, that you can just put a GRS dovetail cleat on and be able to put a bench pin on it. And you can make any table or bench into, you know, workbench. I mean, you don't have a oh, yeah, um, to see. a sweeps tray, but it does get your bench pin up to the right height if you're working on a table or a desk. So I'll, I'll Yeah, well, so many that. people are working at home right now. You yes. know, you kind of have to work with what you have. Yes. So I'll I'll send that off to you. It's a bench pin riser. Do you typically work at a tool bench or I'm sorry, a workbench where you have it kind of at armpit height, traditional jeweler style, or do you modify a table 
like you're saying? <laughs> of course I modified. <laughs> <laughs> I had um, a feeling. <laughs> my, my, my real bench, which is I have right now with COVID going on, I have a studio in Portland with um, like 1,100 square feet. Because it's a classroom. I have 11 students at a time. Um, and then I have another room upstairs that's like kind of like my secret hideaway um, with, with another bench up there and storage. <laughs> but um, with my my bench in town, I have two big, heavy steel cabinets with a real thick, huge booker, butcher block tabletop. And then I, I build a bench pan underneath and I put a light underneath. And it's like a cockpit on a plane. Everything's just like super organized. Um, and so it's, it's not a cutaway bench it's straight across the front, which I prefer because I'm using my GRS bench mate, like a lathe and I need to have, I like to be able to swivel it around, but oh, okay. I, at home, I, since, especially since COVID I've for years been wanting to shoot video, but I couldn't in town because it would get noisy. I'm in a studio building with a bunch of other artists. So it was just, you know, just too much. Yeah. So you can't exactly ask people to quiet down. Yeah. So I just set up at home. I have one room is for video. Just so I I got a really small bench because I wanted to be able to get tripods and cameras in tight. And then there's like a side table that you can crank up and down. And then I have another room that's for video editing. So and design work. So I just I just took over two of the bedrooms at home. And nice. So and that's just that's a traditional bench. It's a little bit of a cutaway. And it's small, but I put a, um, I'm a huge fan of the slide and lock, which is a, um, it just raises the bench pin up and down. And so I can just put that on and basically you put your bench pin on, it has a lever and you can slide this big, heavy cleat up and down so you can work at whatever, whatever height is best for you. And I'm surprised at how I changed the height of what I'm doing like all day long and you know, without even thinking about it. But if I'm sawing, I, I'll have it lower and for a lot of stuff higher. So it's nice to have that that option to be able to. Yeah, that is good for it. people, especially if they're not um, married to the traditional way that the bench pin is, yeah. you know, connected lower. That yep. sounds great. You can bring it up and down. Yep. Um, are there some other tips that you have for people who are um, suddenly working from home? Hmm. Well, I, if you're carving wax, Here's a good one. When you're using the trimmer, it's or a drill press with wax, it kicks up a lot of wax dust. And you should be wearing a dust mask whenever you're at the bench working with a flex shaft, pretty much, especially when you're carving wax and you're using the trimmer because the wax is very powdery and it's not good to get any foreign particles in your lungs. So, what I like to do is I got a little shop vac and it was, you can find one for like $35, like very small. So, it's com- compact. And on the end, I took off whatever attachment was on it. So at the end of the hose, I put a zip tie around it and cinched it up tight. Or you could even just get a piece of duct tape and not up near where you put your attachments, but you want to just put it on the hose and double it up on itself. And then I got just some cheap clamp from the hardware store from the dollar bin. And I just clamped the hose onto my bench pin or positioned it so that when I'm using the trimmer, I can turn on the shop vac and it just sucks, sucks all that dust away while I'm working. And so I'll, it's just I'll kind of laying you there it. on your bench as a vacuum. It's clamped of. on my bench pin. So I'll send you a, an image of that too, but it's, okay. that's a good, it really helps. Um, just keep the dust down at home, which yeah, is, that is which a great is idea. huge because it's just, 
the, the nice thing about this wax is it's not like it's clay where it gets, you know, just, or it's not sticky. It doesn't like stick to your rug. It's very much like plastic powder when you cut it. So it's, it's not like, but you know, I don't want to track it all through the house. And so it's just a nice way to keep, keep that under control. And that's in, out of everything we're doing, that kicks up the most stuff. By the time you've used the trimmer, the rest, you're just using your file and stuff. And it's not that much debris. When, and are you casting at home too? No, I haven't cast in Lord. I'd say 20 some years. I, I oh, just okay. job it out. It's it, unless you're doing a big, big volume, it's not worth it. It's not worth the mess, the, the cost of the equipment and the time it takes to do it. And, um, and also people are often not as careful as they should be when they're casting. Um, one of the number one mistakes I see is people will quench the flask, leaning over the bucket of water and plunging that flask in and out, breathing in all that steam that has silica, fine silica powder particles in it. So for me, I just job out my casting and I'd suggest go on to whatever online forum you are and ask people for a recommendation of a caster in your area. And, um, and people will let you know who they find to be reputable. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> and while we're talking about that, there's a, on Facebook, there's a group called Waxers. It's a closed group. I highly recommend it, but here's the thing. And people don't read instructions. If you want to join the group, it's a closed group. Post a picture of something that you're hand carving. I mean, it could be like a block of wax with your tool next to it, or you know, that you just took a few scrapes on. But there has to be a picture of a wax hand carved on your timeline, set to public, um, not private, and then ask to join the group and you're in. But there's hundreds of us, and it's a really generous, supportive group, and newbies are welcome. So it's, I highly recommend it. Nice. It's a great place for I love it when you can find your people online. Absolutely. In person too, of course. But right yeah. now, especially, it's nice to find your people online. Yeah. Is that something that you were involved with getting started or have you? I didn't get uh, I'm started. I'm sure people have but, all kinds of questions for you on that. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get started. I'm one of the moderators, but um, a gentleman who started it, he Bill Lane, he actually passed, but um, we kept it going. Nice. It's well, yeah. a great legacy. Yes. <laughs> Very cool. Do you find it difficult to manage all these different um, aspects of being a creative Absolutely. artist? <laughs> yeah, like so much. I think everyone and, does. And <laughs> I had I had a part time assistant, but she's not with me right now. And I'm getting ready to launch online classes starting in September, and there'll be oh, online mentored classes. So you'll you know log on. It'll be a subscription for like a month or two or three, depending on the um which workshop it is project based and you'll you'll have video clips on there to watch and files with like probably like 20 some pages of worksheets and then step-by-step -step instructions there'll be a bulletin board for us to all communicate and then I'll do a live at least two hour a week zoom session so I can do demos based on what everybody needs so that's just doing that and getting to know all that software and everything is all it's it's a lot to wrap my brain around. And then like today I was doing tool shipments and I had to do four tool shipments overseas. And I'd rather do a hundred shipments in the US than having to figure it out all that. <laughs> so Yeah, especially yeah. when they're going different places and not to mention you're designing the new um the new tool yeah. with Fordham and yeah. there's just there are so many different aspects of an artist's life, you know. Yes. It's fascinating and 
It's a lot to juggle. Exciting and tiring and all those things. Yeah. Luckily, it's still exciting. <laughs> but yeah. it is, you know, I'll wake up and I'll be like, okay, what hat do I pull on this morning? Like, what am I going to be doing today? Right. Yep. Yeah, well, I think that's the beauty of being an entrepreneur artist is you can decide, you yes. know, to a certain extent, you can decide what you'll do today. But of course, there are always things that are more on fire than other things. I always say that the um, good thing about being self-employed is I get to pick which 60 hours a week I work. I say the same. <laughs> <laughs> I should say I said the same. <laughs> yeah, I, same. It's it's so true, you know. Yeah. There is a lot of flexibility there, but at the end of the day, it's you yes. doing it all. Yep. I wanted to ask you about amateur hour. Yes. I'm so fascinated by this idea. I read it in one of your articles. Can you talk about it? Okay. So I have my creative process is broken into three phases, avoidance, amateur hour, and flow. And I think that we're all in this because we enjoy that flow process where your ideas are matched to the task at hand and you are, um, you know, just you you lose that sense of time and space and you're in that creative zen but i don't think that you can get there without amateur hour and i don't and i think that feeling at, in over your head and that you are inept and you know all that stuff that comes with feeling like this is you're just overwhelmed by your project i think that's where our biggest breakthroughs come from and i think it's um i just i think it's one of the most important things about the creative process so with my creative process starts with, with avoidance. And that's usually avoiding giving somebody an estimate because I hate giving estimates because I'm really bad <laughs> yeah. at it. And I've burned myself so many times by giving a low estimate where if people gasp when I give them an estimate, it's like, it's just loaded. So I try to avoid that as long as I can until it's embarrassing and I have to deal with it. Um, right. Once I get into it, like when I first started carving jewelry, and like when I worked at the Franklin Mint, I didn't know what I was doing. I had never had anybody train me in how to carve wax. And when I went to Tyler School of Art, they gave us a block of wax and an X-Acto knife and said, make a ring that doesn't look like a ring. That was the extent of our training. Um, so I didn't know all the stuff that I teach in my classes. And if I had taken my workshop, you know, 40 years ago, I would have made a lot more money <laughs> and I would have <laughs> saved myself a lot of time and headaches. But I would start out with a piece of wax three times bigger than I needed because I thought, well, I better give myself room for making mistakes. Well, now I know I'm better off figuring out the overall dimensions of my piece and prepping up a wax piece of wax that's like half a millimeter bigger and transfer my pattern and then saw it out and use my trimmer to trim it out accurately. And then I'm just rounding off the edges. But when I started out with a piece that was huge, I would lose my layout and it, it would look like a wad of bubble gum, which was not the look I was going for. And I, I would just be tied in knots trying to get that thing to, I, I, so amateur hour would last me about three quarters of the project. And I would, you know, cause I would have, it just looked like this horrible wad of bubble gum and I would just keep, you know, trying to find it. And, um, I, I would go into the bathroom to have a panic attack because it was like high pressure at the mint, but there were people in the bed, women in the bathroom having full-blown panic attacks. And I'd be like, oh my God, I don't want to go there. And I'd run back to my bench and I'd just be in the panic zone some more. But after, I don't know, sometimes days, it would start start to pull together and it would start to look okay. And then I'd be like, maybe I'm going to pull this one off again. And so while I was in amateur hour, there was this running monologue saying, you don't belong here. You're not good enough. And that last piece Imposter you did that was syndrome. good. 
it was just a fluke and you know you're the biggest amateur in the world and yeah it was imposter syndrome and so then the piece would start to pull together and I'd be like maybe I'm going to pull this one off maybe this will be okay and then it would start to click it would it's almost like coming out of the clouds or coming into focus and um then I would get into that flow zone where I'd be like oh what a relief it's going to be okay so there's a book by Jonah Lair um called Imagine that was pulled off the shelves because he made up some quotes and attributed them to Bob Dylan, which oh. who would think you could get away with that. But he talks, I forget right. what he calls amateur hour, but he's, he insists that it's one of the most crucial parts of being a creative is to allow yourself to get in over your head and to have that creative struggle and that, you know, that angst that goes with it. And he thinks it, it's what keeps everything alive and sparked. And I believe it. And I had somebody come up to me at one of my big public demos after I was talking about this. And I don't remember if she had a Southern accent, but when I tell the story, she does. She's when are you <laughs> talking about amateur hour, I call that spending time with my itty bitty shitty committee. And it's like, I have to <laughs> tell all these, these spiteful people are on my shoulder saying all these hateful things. And I just have to flick them off and tell them to go away. So I, so true in the classroom, if I see somebody really in the sticks with it, I'll say, are you entertaining your itty bitty shitty committee? You need to flick them <laughs> off. And they'll like go through the motions of like flick them off their shoulder. And I think we need to remind ourselves because like, it can get bad right. and we can let it like we need to take it in stride instead of letting it make us Don't run away out. from the bench. And I think yeah. another really important thing is to have more than one piece going at a time. I always have at least three things going. And if I get stuck That's on good one, advice. yeah, you just put it aside and you work on the second or third piece, and you just know that your your subconscious is solving that problem in the background. And when you wake up in the morning, you're going to know what to do. And I always do. It's like same with designing the belt sander. It's like I'll wake up and I'm like, ah, now I know what how to approach this next. So just giving something a break, you know, and coming back with fresh eyes, and let your subconscious take care of stuff. Yeah, I think that's important. I, the you know trusting that you will get out of the weeds. Yes. And it's okay to be there. It's normal. You've been here before. Yes. And every time you solve it. So yeah. don't freak out. But when you're in the moment of needing to run to the bathroom and have a having a panic attack, you know, it's hard <laughs> to remember that. <laughs> yes. Well, also, it's not as bad when I'm working on my own or working for myself. But when I was working in, you know, we, there was 4,000 people working at the Mint. It was like this high, and I had people oh, so unreasonable much deadlines, like breathing down my neck and two people who like thought they were my boss telling me what to do. And they're like, you don't work for him. You work for me. You don't. So it was like so much going on. So it was, it was more excruciating amateur hour when I was on somebody else's dime and I had that performance anxiety. But you know, when I'm having avoidance here and amateur hour, it's like, it's not as, as public. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know what it is, and yeah. you you also have so much under your belt. You know you're going to be fine. Well, at this point, it's Hopefully. it's almost sad. I feel like I can I can carve pretty much whatever's in my mind's eye, but it's I'm not doing it as much because there's so many other things to do with my business. But I do get to pass it on, and that feels really right. Yeah, that's really really amazing. With your classes that you're going to be teaching online, do you? Um, are you going to be mostly focusing on people who haven't carved wax before? No. Or do you have a series it, of, is it for people who it's going to be, know what they're doing and they need your expertise? Unfortunately, to start, you're going to have to have some bench experience. You're going to need to know the basics of like how to use a flex shaft and a saw frame and a file. 
Um, you don't need to know how to solder. But I, I just, I was, I'm on, there's a group of, of teachers online that have this online group where we're sort of helping each other along. And I think initially, you know, eventually I'd like to, I think eventually I would like to have a class for total beginners because I do have total beginners in my in-person classes, but I think it would just be too stressful trying to get somebody, get their bench set up and say, here's how you hold a file and here's how you hold you know, there's so many different skills in wax carving that to have the bench basic bench skills is going to be a requirement. And but I'll also yeah, have some th- classes that are more advanced. And I'm going to instead of my classes are usually week long classes. So my week long class will be broken into probably three classes or three and a half. So it'll so be your students are really going to be coming to Kate Wolf University. That would be awesome. <laughs> I have to say, mm-hmm. I went into the studio. I hadn't been in the studio in a month because we locked down here in March, the end of March. Um, and I just burst into tears. It was like, I was like, oh. I should be teaching. It's like, there's, I love being in the classroom. I, I love seeing the light bulb go off and to have people leave feeling inspired. And it's the best gig in the world. And I, I just, so the idea of Teaching online, now that I know I can do like interacting on Zoom, that's going to make it so much better because I need to see these people. I need to get to know them. Um, So it's, you know, that'll be the next best thing. And then eventually I'll have in-person classes again. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that day, but I'm glad that you have this thing that you can do in between or for people like me who live far away. Yeah, I've had people asking me for years for it. So I just haven't had the time. And now I do. <laughs> Surprise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh pivoting. Yeah. Pivoting your business. Yes. Whatever way you need to. Yep. Well, um, on each episode I ask a guest to share with us a favorite piece of jewelry that has um significance to them or a favorite stone. What would you like to tell um, us about? I think I call them acorn earrings. They're the earrings that are in the five hundred earrings book. And oh yes, I loved those books. Yeah. And they're, I made them the hard way. So when I look at them, I remember like I carved them out of a block of wax, which is the most insane way to make it. But I'm happy with how they came out. And now I teach um, how to turn your flex shaft into a lathe. And you can find some videos on YouTube of where I did this on Rio's site. Um, But how to turn your flex shaft into a lathe to do the basic shape and make them fit like this acorn shape that's two parts. And then, you know, I just, then I can do all the pierce at work, but it probably cut the time down in a third <laughs> from having you know, oh. the, the stupid way I did it when I didn't know better. So to me, they represent doing something that, you know, I was happy with how they came out and it was a total serendipitous ride. I didn't have, I just had a, a, a bullet rotolite that I was working with and I didn't really have anything, you know, outside of making something I wanted to make. And but now I look at it, I'm like, I could do that in a third of the time now and not be as frustrated. So it's like, it's not just because I like them, but also I like, you're like, I can see a progression and evolution. When yeah, I look at you them. can feel that you've come a long way. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thanks so much with talk, for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. And I loved you're hearing so all of these tips for wax working. And, and thanks for all the resources too. Yes, I'll be uploading them to you. And thank you so much for having me. It's it's a, a total, total pleasure. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. 
To see pictures, please check out our show notes, interweave.com slash jewelry dash artist dash podcast. Jewelry Artist is hosted and produced by me, Katie Hacker. We had help from Tamara Hahnemann and Merle White, a special thanks to the team at Lapidary Journal Jewelry Artist Magazine. Jewelry Artist is an interweave podcast and produced by Golden Peak Media. Our podcast producer is Matthew Talisfor. Tammy Jones is our web editor and Jesse Rodriguez does our marketing. Our executive producer of podcasts is Jared Mayer. 